So you're going through a sermon series, and you're moving through the Old Testament. You start with creation, and you go to Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, and then Noah, and you think you're just going to get the next installment, and then plot twist, you've got a new preacher. Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm Jeff Janes. I get to be a United Methodist pastor, and I'm a part of, of Community Brookside, and I'll tell you, I had my own plot twist this week after Pastor Matt asked me to, to come and preach, and it's been quite a twist, but I know that so many people have had other plot twists that have changed their week, and he did tell me about what he was going to talk about this week, so don't worry, we're still going to be on that same series, but we'll have a couple more plot twists uh, as we go through. So will you join me in prayer? Dear Jesus, there are so many twists to our life. So many things that come up that we can't explain. God, help us to know that you're there. God, I pray that you would be with us today. Be with those who are here in this space. Be with those who are online. Help us to know your will. Help us to hear your word. God, speak to me. Speak through me. If need be, Lord, speak in spite of me. That we might hear from you this day and know your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, to continue the plot twist theme today on August 30th, I'm going to talk about Christmas. You've seen that great Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? If you have, then I hope that you'll comment in the comment box. Just put your favorite part. Um, I want everybody who's seen the movie to, to put their favorite part. It's part of my family tradition. Uh, it's something that I watch every year right there alongside Charlie Brown and Christmas Vacation. If you haven't seen it, you probably live under a rock, or you've just missed out. But just in case you haven't seen it, I'll talk you through the, the basic plot lines. And don't worry, I'm not going to give away too many spoilers. It starts, it's a story about George Bailey of Bedford Falls. Well, actually, George just really wants to get out of Bedford Falls. His entire life, he's planning on trying to see the world and trying to go out and, and get out of Bedford Falls. But something just keeps coming up to keep him in Bedford Falls. He's about to go on a European tour and then go to college. And right when he's getting ready to go, his dad has a fatal stroke. And so George needs to stay at home to, to work at the building and loan. In fact, uh, the, the board of directors is trying to, to, to go through this process. And the evil Mr. Potter um, is trying to kill the building and loan. The only way the board will keep it, the only way that they can save it, is if George stays home. So George... Uh, begrudgingly stays home and he works at the building and loan. His, his hope is that, um, that the college, the, the money that he had for college, which went to his brother Harry, his hope that his brother Harry will come back from college and that he'll take over the building and loan and then George can get on with his life. Then he can finally leave Bedford Falls. Well, Harry comes back from college and he's married, <laughs> plot twist, um, and his father-in-law has offered him a job that he can't refuse and so he's not gonna take over the building and loan. He's gonna go work for his new father-in-law. And even when George himself gets married and when he's about to go on his honeymoon, they're, getting, they're on their way out of town. They see that there's a run on the bank. The depression has started and so they go back to the building and loan and they use their honeymoon money to keep the building and loan from being taken over by, again, Mr. Potter. And then eventually his Uncle Billy really messes up big time and George's world starts coming down upon him. George helps so many people, saves their lives in some cases, 
but he just can't catch a break. He's such a good guy, but stuff just keeps happening, one thing after another, to poor George. His house is falling apart, his kid gets a cold, he runs into a tree, his whole world is coming crashing around him, so he's finally ready to give up. And that's when the story really gets a twist, and I'm not going to give that part away. So if you haven't seen it, please go watch it. It's a great movie. It's a classic. And if you have seen it, go watch it again. Even in the middle of, of summer, it's a great movie to watch. Because in some ways, It's a Wonderful Life is, is really telling an ancient story. It's that age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? Religions have been answering and wrestling with this question for years, and, and most of the time, the answer was, you did something wrong, and the gods are punishing you. So it's this idea of pantheistic gods everywhere, of gods of the river, water, fire, the harvest, everything. And, and when good things happen, it's related to the gods. When bad things happen, it's related to the gods. And, and, and honestly, I see that all the time at where I work at Restore Hope. Uh, we have people who are coming in and in desperate need of help. Something's happened in their lives, and they need food or rent assistance. And, and quite often, they think that they're being punished by, by something that, that has happened. This idea of, of good things happening to good people, bad things happening to bad people, has persisted through the centuries. Now, they're not talking about gods of river and gods of fire and water and all of those things. Uh, but there's this idea that they say, oh, I'm just being punished because I did X, Y, and Z. Or this bad thing happened. God doesn't even listen to me because I did that. We hear all the time that people feel like God doesn't hear their prayer anymore because of something that they think they did. Why should I pray? God doesn't listen. Look what happened. Let's be clear. It also happens on the good side, too. Something good will happen, and, and people will give God credit as, because God is shining upon them, taking favor on them. Something like that ancient farmer giving credit to the God of the harvest shining upon him. There's this concept out there that, that God is some sort of eternal accountant, tracking credits and debits, and then if we do good things, we get good things. If we do bad things, then we get bad things. You can call it karma. You can call it any concept from ancient religions around the world, but just don't call it Christian. It's just not what we believe. And honestly, it's the oldest story in the book. Many scholars believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And it was written to combat this understanding and to answer this question of why do bad things happen to good people. So join me now. We're going to read a little bit of, of, of Job. Uh, we're going to go through the first chapter, but I want you to hear the story of Job um, and for yourself. This is from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. It's Job 1. I think it will be on your screen. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses. In turn, they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. 
One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him in his house and all that he has and on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people. And they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Man, Job was a good guy, right? He did everything that he was supposed to do, and a little bit more, honestly. He was doing really well for himself, had a great family, great wealth, a great faith. But Satan, in this heavenly conversation that he's having with God, Satan says, oh, he only has faith because he's got all the stuff. He's got privilege. Take away the privilege and the stuff, and then we'll see what happens. And so in kind of a George Bailey sort of way, Job loses everything, and some truly tragic things happen. He loses his donkeys, his camels, his oxen, his sheep, even his family. In today's world, that would be like losing your savings, your possessions, your, your retirement, and, and your future, and your family, everything. Job had nothing, and nothing even to try to build something new on. He was lost, but he still fell to his knees and worshiped even in the midst of his mourning. So Satan has this conversation with God again and, and says, yeah, but, but you didn't let me touch him. Job 2, he, he says, yeah, let me touch his skin. It, it, you, you, you could have put a fence around his skin, so let me touch his skin. And when he, when he gets hurt, when it finally hits home, then he'll change. So Job gets these boils that are so bad all over his skin that he uses the broken pots of his life to, to scratch his boils. And his wife, Job's wife, says, curse God and die. 
And even then, Job doesn't sin. His friends come over, and and honestly, they just eventually start piling on. They make it worse. They use some of that same bad theology that we talked about earlier, where they said, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something to make God angry. And so God is punishing you. Now, we know from reading that story that, that it wasn't God who was punishing Job. Even Job doesn't believe that, it was, that, he, that God was punishing him. But it was the work of the adversary. Now, God may have allowed it to happen, but that was to show Job's faithfulness. It wasn't punishment. God was not absent. God was not this accountant tracking Job's credits and debits. God is there the whole time. And actually, as you go on further in Job, you read that, yeah, eventually Job even starts asking these questions. Job starts yelling at God. But even then, God does not abandon Job. God is right there with him. He takes all of the the yelling, takes all of the questions, and then responds back and reminds Job that Job is not God. Job did not create all of these things. Job doesn't have the power, but actually Look at me. I am the creator. Look at all of the things around you. And there's some amazing and beautiful passages at the end of the book of Job where God reminds Job about the beauty of creation. In fact, one of my favorite parts is is that God talks about the creation of the sea creatures just to watch them play. Every time I see a dolphin, I think about that passage in the book of Job. Beautiful passages. and, And Job hears that response. And again, he falls to the ground and worship. I told you about some of the things that we hear at Restore Hope quite often. People who come in and they're asking that old question, why are these bad things happening to me? And honestly, that's the reason we have a chapel program at Restore Hope. We want people to know that they're not alone, that God has not abandoned them, that our God doesn't punish people like Zeus from Mount Olympus or an angry river god causing a flood. The reality of our world is that stuff happens. The hurricanes, the people who are cleaning up from the hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, they weren't being punished. The people who are evacuating from wildfires in the West, they're not being abandoned by God. God did not create the coronavirus or its impacts. Now, do those things have some connection to sin? Yeah, you could probably make that case. There's climate change and failed leadership and personal decisions. Sin has consequences. But our God is not throwing lightning bolts from on high to punish sin and doesn't ever leave us alone. In fact, the reality is quite the opposite. God is with us through it all. That's the biggest plot twist of this whole story. That ancient concept of God counting up credits and debits, yeah, it's persisted. But the amazing promise of God is that God is with us. Not in the form of Clarence, the wannabe angel from It's a Wonderful Life, but in the real gift of Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Not only is our God the powerful God who created all of those things that we hear about in Job, But Jesus wept as we weep. Jesus hurt as we hurt. Jesus walked with us. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. God is with us in the hurricanes. God is with us in the wildfires. 
God is with those who suffer. And even in the midst of this crazy year, God has not abandoned us. God is with us. Now, Job's friends get a lot of grief uh, from their reaction, what they said to Job, and, and rightfully so. Even God gives, gives Job's friend grief. But they actually started out okay. In Job 2.13, it says that they sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. It says because he was in such great pain, they were quiet. It was when they opened their mouths that they started getting into trouble. And when you ask people who have suffered great tragedy, what was helpful for them in that time of pain? They don't heap praise on the people who, who tried to explain it away and gave pithy cards or amateur theological answers to help try to help them. No, what they often praise are the people who showed up, sat with them in their pain. They're thankful for the power of presence. Now, Job gets praised, and rightfully so, for his faithfulness in the midst of suffering. But Job should not have to have felt alone in the midst of his suffering. The promise of God is that we are never alone, and we can help people see that promise. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we can find ways to be with people. Now, Job's friends didn't have the, the ability to use phone calls or texts or Zoom uh, to, to help Job but we do. So who do you know that's hurting right now? Who do you know that might feel all alone? And how can you reach out to them and help them? What if you took the next 31 days, just until the end of September, and wrote down contacts, 31 contacts from your phone or your Facebook friends or whoever that you need to reach out to? And every day for the next month, you say, hey, just check it in. How's things, how are things? You took time to be with them. Who do you know that might benefit from that check-in? Friends, there are so many people in our world who are looking for a plot twist to 2020. Let's surprise them with an early Christmas gift, the power of presence and the gift of hope. The hope that we are never alone, and that a better day is possible, and that our worst day is not our last day. May it be so, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.